0: At this point now, we are at the second part of what we'll do with each of these lessons, which is we're talking about preaching in the New Testament now. And you'll notice with each of these, you know, when we get to the early church and you may think that the New Testament is the early church, the apostolic church is the early church. But I'm using distinct terms for early church and the New Testament period. Uh, For me, the early church is any time after the apostles have died. So if anybody's preaching after the time of the apostles, I'm, just, I'm using that as shorthand for early church. And I'm, I'm considering the early church up until roughly the time of the legalization of Christianity. And so I believe next week we will be on to the early church. We'll be finished with the New Testament. But each of these lessons, as we do it, we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the practice of the church during that time period. And we're going to also look at the preaching in the church at that time period. And part of that is because I want you to see the similarities and I want you to see the differences. I want you to see that there's a lot that has persisted through the history of the church from then to now. And then I also, when weird stuff starts coming in, I want you to see how it comes in and I want you to see sort of how it influences, for example, the time of the Reformation. Some of the things the Puritans cared about that we think, wow, those are real hang-ups. Well you only really understand that if you understand what was happening before. And so we want to build this picture that brings us up to the present day. And so um, we're going to look at preaching today. We're going to look at preaching in the New Testament. Now, we started looking at the preaching of Jesus. We talked about how Jesus preached in different places. He preached in the synagogues, on hillsides, on, in the temple. And we talked about also how Jesus was a trainer of preachers. Um, I want to say a few more words about the preaching of Jesus, none of which I can actually give due justice. Okay, so you're going to hear me and you're going to think, man, he should really be talking more about the preaching of Jesus and less about the preaching of men. That is true. (laughs) Um, But nevertheless, if we ever want to get through, we will have to limit ourselves in what we say about Jesus and, and his preaching. Thankfully, we're actually going through the gospel of Matthew. And so what are we exposed to week after week at this point? We're just exposed to Jesus' preaching. Uh, we're, we're inundated, saturated with the preaching of Jesus. There's nothing I can add, honestly, except just to draw your attention to some things. Draw, draw your attention to some of the features of Jesus' preaching. And one of the things that we find is Jesus displayed in his preaching a perfect memorization of Scripture, Um, This is something that I I desperately sense in myself, that I see this huge difference between myself as a preacher today and the preachers who came before, and especially Jesus. Because with Jesus, I I do not know if he had all of the Old Testament memorized. I do believe he could have. uh, And he seems to have massive amounts of scripture memorized So that whenever a situation arises, he can always, at his command, draw forth upon his memory and give a scripture passage that's relevant to whatever situation he's in. Um, uh, And what this allowed was it allowed Jesus to preach in an impromptu way without notes as he is sort of wherever he finds himself. He's able to just explain the word of God and he doesn't need to have a scroll at hand. He doesn't need to have any documents at hand. He simply got the message inside of him and it comes out. Um, Jesus, so he had good memorization. (laughs) He preached in in using familiar language and familiar imagery. Um, This, you know, we already talked about this somewhat, but Jesus used parables, he used stories to illustrate divine truths. He wants to break through, he's breaking through the the limitations of his audiences and he's hitting them with everyday stuff and it's connecting with them. Um, he also used humorous word pictures. Can anyone think of something funny Jesus said? Eye of a needle. Yeah, I mean, when he talks about how it's easier for uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, you know, you, you have to put yourself in that position of those people. It's absurd imagery, and it's hilarious. Um, it's funny. It's meant to be funny. Um, Jesus was not afraid of being funny when it made the point. Um, I think it was Flannery O'Connor who said that humor has a way of disarming us so that we can hear hard things. Uh, it, it, it has a way of lowering our defenses and letting some truth come in. And so there's, there's some sense in which I think humor is good. I, I think it's bad for preachers to on purpose try to be funny. Um, my first sermon I ever wrote and preached on the circuit in Mississippi had a joke in it, and I won't tell the joke. It well, not a bad joke, but I just don't want to distract. It was stupid, and it didn't land, and nobody got it, and, and <laughs> anyway, don't, you shouldn't try. You should not try to be funny. Uh, I think it was Reinhold Niebuhr, though, who said that irony is the best form of humor, and he said it was the best form of humor because irony is people trying to be like God and failing, and that's why he said it's funny. Um, it's, irony is a good form of humor, um, and Jesus used irony as well. Um, Jesus pointed to relatable things that people saw all the time. He would point to the weather and he would make a sermon point out of it, right? He would make an application based on stuff that people did. He would use harvesting crops as an example. He would use getting a splinter in your hand as, or in your eye uh, as an example. You know, imagine Jesus' background is carpentry. That's Joseph's work, right? You can imagine that he's drawing from his own experience. You, I, I, you can be sure Jesus had More than one splinter uh, in his life. He knew what it was like to get a splinter. Um, Paying a worker. Super basic things in life that anybody in an agrarian culture has experienced one way or another. Um, That's what he does. He draws from what the people around him see. Um, Maybe it's sufficient for us to just appreciate that Jesus was a preacher and that he trained preachers and that he believed that preaching was his ordained means of spreading the good news of the gospel. That is what he is committed to, and that is what he's confident in, and it's what he's preparing the, the disciples for. Um, he also provides an uh, encouragement for preachers not to look—an to, to, encouragement to look beyond results. So one of the greatest things that, that at least helps me a great deal as somebody who preaches is that Jesus was the greatest preacher who ever lived, objectively speaking. Anybody who wants to say otherwise is crazy, Right? Jesus is the best preacher who ever lived and yet was he universally received? Yes. I mean, no, just we all know he's not universally received, right? He's, he gets rejected. Um, and so the thing you see in Jesus's ministry is there's a, there's a lesson here for all of us, which is that apart from heart change that is brought on by the spirit, people are not going to respond even to a perfect sermon. And I think a, a lot of us, Hope that there's like a perfect preacher out there. One of the funny things about the pandemic was what did everybody do when they stayed home? They stayed home and they thought, well, I don't have to listen to my preacher at home. And by the way, I wasn't wasn't preaching here during the pandemic, at least not during the whole thing. So I'm not talking about me or anybody else. But people are like, I don't have to listen to the guy down the street. I can listen to the big guy, right? I can listen to the guy that I just wish was in every pulpit in America, right? And you look that up. And I think in some ways we think if we could just hear a perfect sermon, then it would just fix everything for us. And I think Jesus's ministry shows that no, a perfect sermon would actually not do that apart from the Holy Spirit's work. Um, Jesus's ministry is a reminder that the Spirit is the one who gives life. Um, Second Corinthians chapter three, Paul reminds us what happens to the heart of a person who hears a perfect sermon. What happens to a person who hears a perfect sermon without the work of the spirit? Here's what Paul says. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Um, And so the ministry of Jesus is a ministry that shows, hey, look, a veil rests over people's faces. It rests upon their eyes. It makes it hard for them to actually hear the good thing that's there. Um, an important reminder that we have a, a duty to speak the truth, to do it to the best of our ability, but leave the results to God, right? What, is, what does Paul say? Second Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, by the way, for all the complexity and all the messiness of those churches, he talks a lot about preaching in those books. Um, I think this is a church that needs good preaching. It needs preaching and it needs the work of the Spirit. What does he say in 1 Corinthians 3? I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? god gave the growth so neither he nor plant who plants nor he who waters is anything but only god who gives the growth so there's all these factors there's all these people that do their part and yet it's god doing it all um there's a that's a that is a burden lifter for many preachers uh something that it's just really really good to say i'm going to do my responsibility and then god's going to do what he does um so we see that in Jesus' life and ministry too yeah john I hear you there, but if you were an Armenian, wouldn't you be looking for the perfect, uh, perfect sermon? If I was an Armenian, would I be looking for a perfect sermon? Yes, you <laughs> but you know, even then, I don't know whether they would. You know, I can't even remember being an Arminian anymore, so <laughs> I don't know how. I don't know. I don't know what my attitude toward that would have been. I, I think when I was an Arminian, I probably would have said, "We still need the Spirit's work, but He's only going to get you so far." You've got to get yourself over the line. You've kind of got to tip the scales. I think is how I, I always thought of it. I think so back then. Yeah, so. yeah. Ultimately, I'm the one that's going to decide whether this sermon lands on me or not. Right. Yeah. Um, not truly. For those who aren't listening on the mic, uh, <laughs> who can't hear. Um, so let's talk about the apostles preaching. We've moved. We've got Jesus and. There's just so much you could say. But let's look at the apostles preaching. The apostles, when Jesus rises and when Jesus ascends into heaven, what do the disciples do? They take up the the mantle of preaching from Jesus. uh, Just like they saw their, their master doing for his whole ministry, they start doing. I mean, it's remarkable in the book of Acts. You know, Pentecost comes and suddenly Peter is a new man. Suddenly Peter is boldly proclaiming. Boldly speaking, he was a coward before. What did Jesus say at the end of the gospel of John? He said, I prayed for you. I prayed for you that you'll be restored and you'll be able to bless your brothers. And then it's almost like that prayer is being answered at the beginning of the book of Acts. What is Peter now? He's a preacher. And um, Jesus has taught them public proclamation is how souls are going to be saved and lives are gonna be changed. It's God's means of grace. And so that's what you see in the life of the apostles. Now, Justin Martyr, we're gonna hear from Justin Martyr next week. Justin Martyr uh, tells us that the church gathered on Sundays. He says they gathered on the first day of the week and that when the church gathered, they would read the memoirs of the apostles, that this was one of the things that the church would do when they gathered together. The reading of the apostolic writings would have been a part of their regular practice. Um, Early on, you see the writings of the apostles held together alongside of the Torah and the prophets as having equal authority with Scripture. Um, The earliest evidence that we have of this is in the text of Scripture itself, 2 Peter 3. Uh, Peter acknowledges how challenging the writings of Paul are. And you can almost imagine how somebody would say, whoa, you're going to say something bad about Paul? You're going to say something bad about Paul's writings? And then he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And then here's the what I want you to notice, as they do with the other scriptures. Mm. This is just a remarkable moment from, from Peter, where Peter is talking about Paul's writings and getting twisted. And somebody could easily be like, you're criticizing Paul's writings. You're saying that he's not a good writer, or you're saying that he's too challenging. And um, it's almost like he's saying, no. Um, he, I'm not criticizing Paul's writings. He's saying people do this with all of the scriptures. And they, they're even doing it with Paul's writings. And Paul's writings he speaks of as scriptures as well because he says – he doesn't say they twist the scriptures also. He says they, they, they twist the other scriptures. So he's, he's seeing already a regular routine practice in the early church, in the apostolic church where they're reading Paul's writings – Alongside of the law, alongside of the prophets, and they're benefiting from them. Sorry, who was that saying? That was Peter. That was Second Peter 3 16. Um, and so, what is he doing? Peter is putting Paul alongside of Moses and the Psalms uh, and the prophets. Um, the earliest sermon that we have outside the New Testament, and I'm bleeding into next week's lesson a little bit, but the earliest sermon we have from outside the New Testament is from around 120 AD and it is an exposition of Isaiah 54 and it quotes from Paul to help interpret Isaiah so it's a sermon on Isaiah but what does he do to help us understand Isaiah he quotes Paul he quotes from Paul's writings and they quote Paul and they quote Jesus as equal with equal ease and authority alongside of Isaiah because already by 120 We're seeing it in practice that they're regarding these texts all as being of equal authority. This is all God speaking. Um, And we'll look at that sermon actually next week. Actually, we'll probably talk about how they worship next week, but we probably won't get to the sermon next week. So the the Jerusalem church also, as far as the practice goes, they would have used Hebrew for the written scriptures and Aramaic or Greek for their verbal teaching. You know, when they're actually teaching uh, in the synagogues, they would have used Aramaic or Greek um so let's get more specific than just the apostles. Let's talk about Paul. Let's talk about Paul's preaching. Um unlike other preaching in the New Testament, we have a large number of things that Paul said that helps illuminate his practice of preaching. So he doesn't just preach, but he talks about preaching. He doesn't just preach, but he actually gives us some words about how he thinks about preaching and how the early church should have thought about preaching. So one of the examples, and I'm only going to draw from a few places. I'm not going to just be exhaustive here, but I want to just give you a few prominent places where he talks about preaching. One of the classic texts is Romans 10. In Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17, uh, I was going to ask one of you to read, but I want folks to be able to hear it. So I'm going to go ahead and read it myself into into the mic. Here's what Paul writes. He's talking about the Jewish people and his desire for them to hear the word of God and believe in the in the Messiah. And then he says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And I just love how he uses scripture here. Listen, he says, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, I'm not going to exegete this passage. I just want to give you some big takeaways, some big things that this tells us about preaching in the mind of Paul. First is this the need for the preacher. Um, Paul is convinced of the absolute importance and effectiveness of preaching. Uh, I've pointed this out before. Preaching is really funny because it's just a person getting up and talking. Like, strictly speaking, it's not a light show. There's nothing magic about it. There's no performance really to it. There shouldn't be a performance to preaching. Um, it should just be an authentic display of God's word being spoken out loud to people. I mean, just talking is a funny thing that God says, just talk and I'm gonna bless it. And it's very counterintuitive. I think that's why in First and Second Corinthians, he talks about the foolishness of preaching. It kind of doesn't make sense. Why should this work? And yet it does, right? Built on preaching, what has Christianity done? God spreads it through the whole world. You know, he changes the world with preaching. Um, Paul is convinced that preaching works and that the spirit takes the word and in conjunction with the spirit, right? God uses it to produce faith in the human heart. That's, that's amazing. And he, and he doesn't, he says, it's not rites and rituals that save, it's hearing the word of God that saves. So he's, he's convinced of the importance of preaching. Second thing is, he's import, it's important that the preacher be sent sending of the preacher, right? The, the preacher is sent by God. He doesn't simply call himself. He doesn't simply go of his own initiative. Paul says that he must be sent. And, and I think this highlights the ministerial nature of preaching, right? When I say ministerial, I mean taking someone else's work and continuing it, right? Working on somebody else's behalf. That's what we mean when we say ministerial. Um, the preacher speaks on behalf of God. Um, the preacher, in other words, speaks for the great preacher. He's just doing, he's, as a shepherd, He's as an under-shepherd, he's doing what the great shepherd has given him to do. So he just, he just operates as a sent one, as an emissary, as somebody who's speaking for someone else. That's why this morning in the sermon, what did I do? I said, yeah, if you just heard me say not to be afraid of people, you'd look at my comfort in the office and you'd say, well, I don't need to listen to this guy. Who did I tell you to listen to? Jesus right? So that's the preacher's job is to say, yeah, who, who cares me? Who cares about me? Listen to God. Listen to the one that I'm pointing you to. Don't, don't worry about me. Uh, I, I may have a credibility problem, but Jesus doesn't, right? Um, the other thing that uh, Paul talks about is the content of the preaching, right? The, the, the preacher doesn't just proclaim anything. He doesn't just say anything. Specifically, he says he proclaims good news, Uh, The rabbis didn't preach good news. They preached the law. They combed over the law to understand and obey it in all of its minutia. And Christian preaching will focus. Of course, it will include the law, but it will include a right reading of the law, and it won't keep its focus there. It's going to go to the cross. It's going to go to Jesus. Christian preaching that just stays in the law and doesn't go to Jesus, it's just Jewish preaching. It's just Old Testament preaching that doesn't have its eyes on the Messiah. Another passage we could look to to understand preaching from the mind of Paul and how he did it was 1 Corinthians 2. So again, I mentioned 1 Corinthians talks a lot about preaching and this is a lot, very practical actually. Paul is talking to the Corinthians about their observation of him and the way he acted around them. So he's he's in a sense recalling to their memory his own time when he was there. And what does he say? In 1 Corinthians 2 he says, and I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. It makes you wonder if if Paul was nervous to talk to them. I don't know. I wonder what he means by with much trembling, right? Um it'd be interesting to hear him elaborate on that. He says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It just makes you wanna hear one of Paul's sermons even more. Cause like I kind of, as a preacher, love it. I love hearing it. Cause I am like, I think he might've been a bad preacher. He thinks, he, he thinks he's a bad preacher. Maybe he was a bad preacher. But he would have told the truth and the spirit would have changed people's hearts. And that's what would have made him a great preacher. Mm -hmm. Um, But in himself, he's just he's like, I shake. I I mean, I might be twisting it a little bit, but he's like, I was nervous when I was talking to you. He seems to be saying that I was nervous when I talked to you. I wasn't I didn't use the right words. Everything about me was messed up. Maybe he's saying I was having an off day. Maybe (laughs) whatever he's saying, he's saying it didn't matter because God was the one that ministered to you. So even though I was shaky and trembling and and I didn't use the right words that I had planned before or something, I said something else. But what did what does he say? In demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Right. They don't think I'm a Christian because Paul is such a great preacher. They don't think that. So. What does he do? Uh, a few few points that I already was hitting on. I, got, I started going before I looked at my notes. Paul doesn't vest the power of preaching in skillful speech. That's where we start, right? He doesn't vest it in skillful speech. This is a Greek virtue. This is something that the Greeks highly prized. High eloquence, good speeches. They were considered a form of entertainment. I mean, you might not think that way, and we might not think of hearing people give speeches today as a form of entertainment. We've got television. We've got I was going to say radio. We've got podcasts. Oh, uh, we have all kinds of things that we can do. And we if you were to ask somebody to list off the things they find entertaining, would they even put speeches on the list? I guarantee you they would not. Very, very, very few people would, would do that. Um, having been to Athens, having stood in the Areopagus, having, a, having debated with the philosophers, he doesn't do that with the Corinthians. You know? he, doesn't, he doesn't do that. Uh, He doesn't bring out the eloquence. Um, It appears there was a simplicity in his delivery and a simplicity in his message. Um, Here's what Hughes Oliphant Old says. You know, I mentioned Hughes Oliphant Old before that I was gonna keep appealing to him, get used to hearing that name. Um, He's been very helpful at just sort of dissecting preaching. Um, He says, we should be careful to note that it is what God does in preaching, which counts. It is because in the preacher's words, we hear Christ's word, that it produces faith. It is not because the preacher is clever or the listener is wise that the word is effective. Really good to hear. So Paul preaches simply. He lacks philosophical flair. And what does that result in? It results in a demonstration of the spirit and power. That's what Paul says. Um, Now, there's another passage um, that we don't have time to look at. It's Romans 15, 15 to 16. And in that passage, he speaks of preaching as a sacrifice uses that sacrifice terminology, even used priestly terminology, um, which I just find fascinating. I would love to dig more into that. He talks about preaching as uh, preaching the re- pro- proclaiming the resurrection. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, he speaks of preaching as the proclamation of a mystery in Ephesians. Um, you know, there is so much to be said about New Testament preaching. Let's, let's look at a, an example Um, let's look actually at Paul's practice. So here's the interesting thing. The book of Acts does not give us direct examples of what we would call Christian preaching. And what I mean by that is preaching for Christians. That's not meant to be evangelistic. The whole book is just full of evangelistic sermons. Um, it doesn't give us texts or sermons that are written only for believers. In other words, um, everything in the text is either overheard sermons to evangelize people or um, a defense of his Christian practice before pagans, right? So all of the people hearing these sermons are either, they're Christians overhearing it, but they're all evangelistic. They're all evangelistic sermons. Um, and maybe there's, there is something to be learned there at least, which is that I think more preachers, including myself, should preach with the understanding that preaching is for Christians, but it should be comprehensible to non-Christians, Um, Like there should be an element of invitation to preaching. There should be a clear explanation of the gospel. Um, Sermons should avoid using complex jargon. Um, If it uses that jargon, then it should explain what that jargon is. It should explain what that terminology is. Um, Really what should happen is people who are in the church service should feel like they could invite their unbelieving friends and they would understand what they just heard. Because if you think, if the sermons are just next level, brilliant, philosophical, theological journeys through the biblical theological text, you know, if you get that, then you're going to eat well. But then you're also going to say, I can't invite Betty because she is not going to understand this. She is going to be so lost. And so preaching needs to be simple enough and plain enough that you can invite somebody who's not a believer and they're going to catch on to what's happening. Um, that's, I think that's one takeaway from what you see in the book of Acts with the preaching. And here's the thing, we can get very ingrown. Uh, we can start speaking our own language, right? We can start speaking Christianese and we for, can forget what it's like to not know these things. We can forget what it's like to, to um, you know, uh, be a visitor to a church even, we can forget what it's like. Um, we can become so ingrown even that we start assuming the gospel in our preaching, and we don't explain it anymore, right? Because we think we've moved beyond it. And then we forget that unbelievers uh, are supposed to be in our midst when this happens, right? Paul assumes there will be unbelievers in the midst of the gathered church in his letters. He talks about this. Um, And then we also learn from Paul's writings that, look, the same sermon can hit one person one way, and it hits another person completely differently. I see that just anecdotally here at Evergreen. I'll do a sermon on one topic and someone will come up to me and say, yeah, I heard this. And I go, oh, I didn't preach that, but I am glad you heard what you needed to hear. I mean, I don't mean that ironically. I don't mean that someone's a bad listener. I mean, the Holy Spirit takes one message and he gives another message to somebody. Um, Spurgeon said this. He said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Uh, the same gospel that melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. In the the same, same message, two different responses. Um, in the book of Acts, we do have a narrative of Paul preaching to believers. So if you remember, he's in the upper room, or at least he's in a building. He's in in a second story building. And it says this on the first day of the week, this is Acts 20, verse seven. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together, notice that second person pronoun there, we, uh, we were gathered together to, to break bread. Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. I almost think like, feel like Luke is, is he he subtweeting Paul here? Is he like kind of talking about him? (laughs) It was a little long, Paul. Like you almost wonder. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. And there's more good things that happened there, but... Um, the first thing we see though, is this is a firsthand account. This is somebody who witnessed this. He was there for Paul's preaching in this room. Um, Luke's a witness to it. Uh, what day of the week were they gathered on? They're gathered on the first day of the week. Um, we see that central to their gatherings is the preaching of the word, right? Paul evidently preached such a long sermon that people are falling asleep. Now we don't do midnight sermons around here. Uh, yet they valued the word so much that they stayed up late. You know, they stayed up very late whenever they could hear it. Whenever they could hear the word, they're there for it. Um, we also note that it's an evening worship service. Uh, Christian worship should take place on the first day of the week for all the reasons the early church took up that practice. Um, but the time of the service itself is neither here nor there. You see in the in the New Testament people meeting in the early morning and you see people meeting late at night. Um, Evening service is just as legitimate as a morning service. I know some churches where they, where they meet in a borrowed facility and they can't meet in the morning. And so they have evening worship at the church because they can't have a morning service. You sort of meet when you can. That's sort of what you see in the New Testament. Um, and for all we know, this could have been a, a situation where they meet in the morning And then they come together again in the evening. Uh, It could be that they had morning and evening worship. It could have been one long worship service where they're just there all day long and they're there till midnight. We don't know. Um, So that's at least an example of a practice of preaching. I wanna point out a few things about Paul's sermon. Let's let's actually go to a sermon from Paul. I think I can do this in five minutes. We'll see. Paul is in at the Areopagus in Acts 17. It's a very, the reason I want to go to this one is because what is he doing here? He's talking to people who have no Jewish background. He's talking to a group of people that need to hear the gospel explained and they need it presented to them and they need to be challenged. And you see, the, what, a, you see what good gospel preaching looked like to a culture where nobody understands. And the first thing you notice is he doesn't go in with Christianese. Uh, There's no Christianese in his sermon at all. So um, here we go. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, this is verse 22, said, "'Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way "'you are very religious. "'For as I passed along, "'I observed the objects of your worship. "'I found also an altar with this inscription "'to the unknown God. "'What therefore you worship as unknown, "'this I proclaim to you. "'The God who made the world and everything in it, "'being Lord of heaven and earth, "'does not live in temples made by man.' Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each, each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. By the way, isn't it interesting now how nowadays we will just quote that passage to describe God's providence? We're not quoting. We're quoting scripture, but we're actually quoting Euripides. Um, We're quoting a pagan philosopher when we say that. Um, But Paul says it's true. So it's okay. You don't have to feel guilty. Um, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And then I just, I'm gonna give you a little more because I want you to see the reaction to his sermon. Just think of all the stuff that, that they could fixate on in that sermon. And yet look at what they get hung up on. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So what you see here is, first of all, this is a purely evangelistic sermon in a totally foreign culture. At best we know, there is nobody in this, in this area that's persuaded. Nobody here that's, that's persuaded. This is Paul. Uh, it looks like he's got Christian witnesses, but they are not his audience. His audience is specifically unbelievers. Uh, another thing I want you to notice is that's classic oratory at its best. Classic oratory at its best. What I mean by that is look at the pattern. He opens with a polite diplomatic greeting. Right. This is, this is classic Greek oratory. He opens with diplomatic greetings. He speaks of his own experience in their city. You know, it's kind of like if you go to a concert and the singer uh, is like, hello, Portland. And then everyone goes crazy. They're like, that's our name. You know, it's kind of what he's <laughs> like. He knows us. Um, that's what Paul's kind of doing here. He's opening his audience up because he knows who's listening. And so he exposits the Greeks to themselves, though. He opens up their own philosophers and expounds their texts. He's got a familiarity with these folks. Um a philosopher would have been very comfortable with the the sermon that Paul preaches here. He, he speaks the language of his audience. He avoids confusing jargon. He avoids saying things that would have been foreign to them. He avoids using Jewish-sounding language at all. Um, they would have known who the Jews are. And in a Greek culture, they would not have been impressed with the Jews, probably. Um, you've got some admirers among the Greeks, but for the most part, they hear this and um, and they are, he is not going to turn them off by by quoting from the Jews. He doesn't quote the Old Testament scriptures. He doesn't, doesn't do that. Instead, he explains things to them in their language. And what this is, is it's apologetic preaching at its finest. Remember, apologetics means uh, to give a defense. It means to explain the hope that you have within you. And that's what Paul does in this passage. I'm going to mention a few things that he does here, and then I'm gonna have to stop. We'll, we'll have to look. Um, oh, actually, we're so close. I might just go over five minutes. Maybe the Sunday school teachers will forgive me. midnight, We have it till midnight. It till midnight? Okay. And there's no high windows to fall out of. Right? Charles, don't open that window. Whatever you do, don't open that window. So <laughs> it's apologetic preaching at its finest. There's a book called Apologetics at the Cross, and. In that book, the authors point out some things about Paul's preaching here. And I just want to draw your attention to them. First of all, he relates to and affirms aspects of their culture. What does he relate to and affirm about the people that are listening? They have a belief in the supernatural. He affirms that. Um, they have a desire and an impulse to worship. He affirms that. Um, they have a sense that they are missing something. He affirms that. Um, they have a belief in a God who is the source of all life. He affirms that. Um, Just he he affirms what he can, right? He looks at what he can and he is appreciative where he can be appreciative for his audience. But here's the other thing, though. So, yes, he, he relates to aspects of their culture, but then he also challenges their culture. Let me give you some examples. He uses one of their own beliefs to argue that God is independent of creation, so they think they have this belief that God is dependent upon creation, and he says, "No, actually, you guys are contradicting yourselves. You guys are confused about what God, what the Creator is really like." Um, he takes issue with the Athenians' quid pro quo style religion, where we serve the gods and the gods serve us back. He takes issue with that. He says, "God's not served by human hands." So he, he's directly saying, "You guys are wrong about this." Um. He takes issue with their belief that God is dependent on creation. He says, no, actually, we're dependent completely upon him. And you know some of your philosophers have said this before. In him we live and move and have our being. So he's making an argument there that they don't, they don't quite understand God and they are confused. Um, they, um, he also takes issue with the fact that they claim intellectual superiority – and yet he points out, you guys have an unknown God. You guys, have mis- you guys have things about this world that you don't understand too, and you admit it. And so he's confronting them with that as well. So, so he's not giving them everything, right? He's not just saying, yeah, you guys are right. I should start listening to you guys even. Instead, he says, there are things you understand and there are things you don't understand. Um, but the third thing that he does in this message is he connects his audience to Jesus, right? He's not interested in just showing up and just giving, a, seeing if he can hold his own in Athens, and then walk away and be like, "Well, I, I talked to the philosophers in Athens. I'm gonna, you know, send out a fundraising email about this, right?" He, instead, he's like, he's like, they need to know who Jesus is, and so he calls them to repent. He calls them to turn from their idolatry in verse thirty, right? He's and he's, he's punchy about it too. As nice as he was up to verse thirty, then he kind of he kind of brings the heat a little, doesn't he? He says. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He knows he's departing from them here. Like he knows, he knows that he is saying things they don't agree with here. And yet his concern is not to be relevant. It's not to be accepted. He does think carefully about how to speak so he's not misunderstood which is the really important thing about speaking well, is we don't want people to misunderstand. We don't want people to reject a misunderstood gospel, right? And how many in our culture have rejected the gospel? And what do they think the gospel is? Be a good person. Don't be gay, right? They think that's, they think that's what the gospel is because they just have never heard Christian gospel preached. Um, they hear moralism, right? They hear moralism and they think that's what I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a good person and... They reject a gospel they don't understand because they haven't heard it. Um, now, I will just, just say in closing here, there is another sermon and we could read it and it would be really beneficial. He gives this speech to King Agrippa and it's an evangelistic sermon. And you guys remember what he says at the end of the sermon? Yeah. yeah are you trying to convince me to be a Christian? Yeah. You know? <laughs> You almost convinced me. Are you trying? And he says, not just you, but everybody. Yes. I want everybody to believe. So that's Jesus, or that's Paul expressing what he really wants from preaching. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm just going to close. I'm going to close with a quote from Hughes Oliphant Old. And um, I think it sort of brings up what we the reason we're talking about worship here, right? This is a, this is a class where we're focusing on worship. Why are we making preaching such a big focus each time? And here's what Hughes Oliphant Old says. He says, it's at this point that we want to bring up one of the major questions of these volumes. How is this kind of preaching, missionary evangelistic preaching, related to worship? We've noted how many of the sermons reported at length in Acts are not part of what could be called a service of worship. The point we want to make is that the missionary sermon, no matter where it is preached, no matter how secular its literary form, whether it be a philosophical polemic in Athens or a defense in a court of law, the missionary sermon always implies a call to repentance and baptism. Missionary preaching is far from the sacrament of baptism. The missionary is part of the sacrament of baptism, sorry. The missionary sermon belongs to the substance of a true celebration of baptism, as do the penitential sermon and the catechetical sermon. In other words, the sermons that are meant to um, make you penitent and bring you to sorrow for your sin and to teach you as well. All of them are actually pointing us to true faith in Christ and what baptism represents. So when you think of, of preaching, just understand that it is an essential part of worship. Um, it's, it's a part of worship that if you don't have it, then you're singing, but you wouldn't call it worship. Or you're praying, but you wouldn't call it worship. You might call it a prayer meeting. Um, but it is the preaching of the word that really makes corporate worship what it is. And we're gonna see that as we go on, that you know, we're focusing mostly on corporate worship here in this class. Um, and Benjamin, you have a question that I can answer in 30 seconds? Yes. Is preaching then the most essential aspect of Sunday service? Most essential? I don't know that I would say that because we're going to talk about the elements of worship in the service. And it is one. I think if it wasn't there, you would not call it worship. Um, I, I uh, served at a church that in the past uh, would have a Sunday where an ensemble would come up and would sing for a good portion of the service. And I was told in the past that the last pastor did not preach on those Sundays. And when I asked why, he said that the singing was so powerful that he didn't want to trounce it basically. Yeah. And so they would, have a sur- where they would have a Sunday service and there was no preaching in it. Um, boy, I would have had the kind of heartburn that sends you to the ER Uh, in that situation, just because I do think preaching is essential. I think if you have a service without preaching of any kind and no reading of the word, then you're, you, you don't have a worship service. Yeah. But, um, there's more that we could say. In fact, we're going to talk more about that kind of thing. In the meantime, I know I went long. Eli's giving me the happy smile though. He's letting me go long. I, I, maybe I should go longer just to oblige him, but let me, let me pray. I'm going to pray so briefly. You'll think it's an insulting prayer, but I'll, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, only you can bring life from death and only you can change hearts. And so we are dependent on you as our word, as the word is read, as the word is preached. We pray that you would bring a harvest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.